Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Sam Lom, and today we're talking with Charters Wynn about his new book, The Moderate Bolshevik, Mikhail Tomsky, From the Factory to the Kremlin, 1880 to 1936. So thank you for being here, Charters, and would you like to tell us a couple of words about yourself? Yeah, um, so... I'm a, I have been for 32 years a, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, my f- first book was Workers' Strikes and Pogroms, The Donbass Never Bend in Late Imperial Russia, 1870 to, to um, 1905. Um, and of course, the Donbass has now been a, a focus of a lot of interest, and the book has been republished. Um, I, my future project is entitled um, The Circle of Five, Stalin's War Cabinet. Um, so I'm f- turning my focus from labor history, which I've done much of my life doing, to to now a, a focus on, on World War II. Um, that is partly less thing, partly because I'm a, a director of a program focusing on World War II here at the University of Texas. Okay. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about who Tomsky was and what got you interested in his life? Yeah. Um, so uh, Mikhail Tomsky was uh, the lone proletarian member of the Politburo during during the 1920s. So he was from a working class background, um, rose up through the party ranks, and became a, a member of the of the seven member Politburo of the 1920s. Most of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the power struggle that takes place during the 20s. But he was also head of the trade unions, um, the, the, the whole trade union bureaucracy. Um, and I was curious about this man because I was curious about labor history. I was turning to the 1920s, and he appears everywhere, um, but no one's ever really written about him. It's just he's linked with other names. Um, so I was very intrigued by this worker who would with only three years of elementary school education, could rise into the very top ranks of the party. Um, and uh, so that's what that what intrigued me. And as I learned more and more about him, there were just, he was basically involved in every key development during the first um, 20 years of the, of the Bolshevik party or of the, of the Soviet Union. So would you like to tell us a little bit about his personality, how he was perceived by his peers and underlings? Yeah, he was, um, well, he had a very uncharacteristically confident manner. Um, Most of the workers that were in the Bolshevik party were intimidated by intellectuals, but he never never was. Um, So he was also able to charm people. including British trade unionists, um, people who were opposed to him. Um, his, he was clearly one of the best orators in the party, uh, kind of a natural sp- public speaker. He uh, um, spoke at, at all sorts, in all sorts of settings, but 
typical of all of these speeches was little insertions in the stenographic reports about laughter in the crowd. So he was witty, um, charming, self-confident, um, and, uh, uh, and he was perceived as, as really one of the major figures or even rumors that he would replace um, Stalin during the 1920s. Um, so that's a, a little bit about his personality. Um, so let's start with his early life. Can you tell us a little bit about his upbringing and how his working class and trade unionist background affected his decision to join the party and his views on party matters? Yeah, so he, he um, uh, was born in 1880 uh, in a, a squalid suburban uh, industrial area outside of the capital city of St. Petersburg. Um, his mother divorced his father before he was born um, because of his abusive behavior. So he was raised by a single mom, um, and he uh, really, truly was kind of an example of the kind of impoverishment that, that existed for so many Russians um, at, during this period. As a result, he only had three years of formal education um, before, at the age of 12, he was forced to um, start working um, in one of the factories in, in St. Petersburg. Um, he uh, uh, was but before too long, he took advantage of the opportunity to become an apprentice, become a printer. Um, so he was one of those skilled workers, um, and he clearly was always really interested in learning. Um, he was kind of an autodidact, um, and uh, um, so he's far more worldly than his three years of formal education might suggest. Um, the reason he joined the Bolsheviks was he was joining these various circles of the skilled workers were joining, uh, discontented with conditions inside of Russia. And it probably had more to do with the leader of that initial circle, who is a Bolshevik, than, than any kind of doctrinal differences, um, which probably made very little sense to, to Tomsky at, that, at this point. Um, but he becomes, he becomes a Marxist, he becomes a Bolshevik at the age of 24. And that was pretty unusual, too, to join that late, um, be partly because he already had children by, by this age. Um, so that's a, a little bit about um, his background um, and uh, why, why he would join the Bolshevik party. So what role did Tomsky play in the 1917 revolution? So he'd been active um, already by 1905 um, in, the, in the Bolshevik party. He plays a, a, a key role during 1905 in, in um, Estonia, where he was, because he was probably blacklisted at, in St. Petersburg. He then spends nine years in prison um, and Siberian exile um, before 1917 arrives. But uh, once the autocracy collapses, he makes his way back to, to, to St. Petersburg. And he plays a, a leading role during, during the revolution. Um, and what comes to the fore partly is his willingness to challenge Lenin's ideas. Um, most, most initially, because let the Bolshevik in St. Petersburg, Petrograd at this time, um, wanted to have their own independent newspaper. Um, and Lenin strongly opposed that, um, but ultimately um, Tomsky prevailed. Tomsky is also kind of a, word, a, a voice of caution during 1917. He questioned whether or not Russia was really ready for a Bolshevik revolution. He favored a more 
coalition socialist uh, government. Um, and um, partly because of his years of, of um, in Siberia and prison before that and working with the kind of toxic chemicals in the chemical industry, he was often um, suffered from various uh, physical and increasingly psychological problems. So in the middle of 1917, after the failed uh, July days uprising, he goes back to Moscow. And it's in Moscow where the most violent events during 1917 take place. Um, but he ultimately, um, although really determined in this case and in 1905 to do what he could to avoid bloodshed, um, he ultimately um, uh, puts aside his reservations and helps usher the Bolsheviks into power in, in Moscow. Um, and uh, so he plays a, a prominent role in 1917 that's often been obscured by uh, focus on other key figures. So you describe Tomsky as a moderate Bolshevik. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, people have, have raised that question before. On the face of it, it seems like an oxymoron, right? Um, moderate and Bolshevik don't really go together. Um, really. <laughs> I mean, I'm the person who wrote a book on Stalin's constitution, so you know, <laughs> I find those sorts of things um, very interesting. Yeah, well, I think he was just... Um, uh, a modern in the sense that he was far more pragmatic than others, um, opposed to those who had far more radical ideas about both the possibility of spreading the revolution internationally, um, but also um, w within Russia. So he was a, a major defender of NEP, the new economic policy, the moderate um, or the kind of mixed economy of the 1920s. He was um, Kind of the polar opposite in the party to Trotsky, and they would have a ongoing animosity between the two of them. Whereas Trotsky talked about things like we need to create labor armies, and we need to militarize labor, um, and we need to shake up the trade unions. Um, Tomsky was someone who was arguing, no, um, we need to be more in touch with what ordinary workers want, um, and we need to put aside some of these um, harsh measures that Trotsky's talking about. Um, so he was he was moderate in um, just taking the, um, the more, I don't know, prudent, pragmatic, cautious side. And what's probably been lost in, in the historiography is the sense that there was a real spectrum of, of views during the 1920s. Um, and um, again, whereas Trotsky, Trotsky was on one end of that spectrum, um, often referred to as the leftist end, um, Tomsky is on, on, the, on the opposite end, a much more rightist um, position, and, uh, or at least that's how it was characterized, um, certainly later when he's denounced as a, as a right deviationist. Um, but yeah, he was, he was uh, moderate in personality and policies. Um, although, and I know we'll get, we'll get to this, during the power struggle, he could often sound um, far from, from moderate in his um, willingness to, to uh, crack down on people who he thought were threatening the policy of NEP, namely Trotsky, and then later Zinoviev and, and Kamenev as well. So why don't we transition into that, talk about the role he played in the inner party power struggles in the 20s and his relationships with people like Lenin and Trotsky. 
Yeah, well, it goes actually even during the Civil War when um, uh, Tomsky was in this position of trying to balance between these various roles he was playing, the leader of the trade unions, but also one of the top party officials. And while the party officials really wanted, and Tomsky certainly shared this goal to, to um, have the economy recover, industrialize the economy, um, Tomsky at the same time wanted to defend workers' interests. So this brought him into, into conflict with Trotsky during the, 19, during the Civil War, when Tom, uh, Trotsky was suggesting uh, these labor armies and other things. During the, during the 1920s, after um, he sent out to Siberia, out to Central Asia, um, and we can come back to that, um, he's brought back, he's made one of the um, seven members of the Politburo. So it's just these seven people who were really um, in charge of making policy in the country. Um, and uh, he, uh, one of the challenges of trying to understand uh, Tomsky's thinking is why would he support Stalin? Um, but it, it's important to remember that 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 St Stalin would, um, was very good at, at occupying a kind of middle position during the 1920s. He seemed to to Tomsky shared many of his uh, Tomsky's moderate goals and and ideals. Uh, it was Trotsky who who really um, Tomsky saw as, as the, the threat to the policies that he, that he shared. Um, and I, re I don't think many people have kind of fully appreciated just how that animosity towards Trotsky, not just by Stalin, which has been much played up, um, but by a person such as Tomsky would um, play a role in why he would side with, with, um, with Stalin along with Bukharin and Rykov. And they, they, had the majority within the Politburo. Uh, as everyone knows, ultimately, uh, Trotsky is, is pushed aside. Um, going back to, to Lenin, um, uh, of course, Lenin would be incapacitated in 1922 as, as a result of the first of his strokes. Um, and uh, But Lenin was opposed to putting Tomsky on the, on the Politburo. Um, but uh, uh, he was outvoted, um, and uh, just a kind of an indication of the kind of respect that that Tomsky enjoyed. That um, that even over Lenin's objections, he becomes a member of the Politburo. But he, but uh, intertwined with the with this inner struggle over power within the Politburo was also um, Tomsky's you know continued role as head of the trade unions um, and trying to again kind of engage in this kind of balancing act between the, the goals of the party and the goals of the trade unions. Um, and what exactly were the goals of the trade unions and how were they different than that of the party? Well, um, the goals of the trade unions were to protect workers' interests, um, to uh, uh, allow... What do you mean by that? Because I'm sure the party would say that they also protected workers' interests. Can you be a little more specific? Yeah, sure. Um, well, basically higher wages is what they wanted. Um, and um, the party was saying, no, um, uh, much more emphasis needs to be pushed on raising productivity. Um, and uh, as a result, um, uh, 
they would often be in conflict. Um, Tomsky, at the same time, agreed with the party that there should not be strikes, that that would un undermine the the um, the, the trade, uh, excuse me, the, these goals of, of raising producti uh, production in the country. Um, it's important to, to appreciate that at the end of the night uh, of the Civil War, I mean, the Russian industrial economy had been ultimately completely, virtually completely destroyed. It was some 15% of, of the productivity levels at, at uh, on the eve of World War One in 1913. And it was only slowly during the 1920s that um, industrial production got back to where it was, you know, back in 1913. Um, so the goals of the trade unions were to help with improving production, but also um, to, um, you know, improve conditions for workers, which were also just, you know, completely horrible by the by the end of the Civil War. So wages would slowly increase during the 1920s. Um, one of the problems for the trade unions that they really had trouble gra grappling with was the high level of unemployment during the 1920s. Um, but that was not because the number of workers weren't continually increasing, but it was because as the industrial economy begins to recover, all these peasants from rural Russia began flooding into these cities, um, couldn't find jobs, and um, the trade unions were not really in a position to, to do much to alleviate that. But that would be a kind of constant criticism of the trade unions, that, that they hadn't done more for unemployed young workers, women, and others who were struggling to find jobs during the 1920s. Um, Okay. Um, and so it's this conflict between uh, the goals of the trade unions, which tend to be a little bit more practical and centered on the improving daily conditions of workers' lives, as opposed to the party who's thinking more nationally or globally that causes the conflict? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, um, so yeah, the, the, the trade unions would try to improve conditions for, for workers in these individual factories. Also another big um, factor during all of this was that um, the trade unions wanted to have a role in the administration of, of, of factories. I mean, one of the goals before the revolution um, was workers' control. That's what socialism meant, it meant that workers would be in control of, of industry. Um, but with these various problems and with the lack of kind of administrative skills by many of the workers in these factories, increasingly um, factories were run by, by, by managers who are not workers, who are not part. Um, and that would be a, a source of conflict, especially when these so-called bourgeois specialists were brought in at much higher pay, but actually knew how to run these factories and uh, in many cases been uh, working for these in managerial positions in these factories before before the revolution. So that was another source of, of real conflict. And um, Tomsky, uh, and this would be not, not to his credit, would um, really support the kind of crackdown on these bourgeois specialists um, at the end of the 1920s. Um, but uh, but they were still workers had had influence. They uh, or the trade unions had influence. They negotiated these collective agreements in which um, managers agreed to increase um, wages. Um, the trade unions managers could not fire trade unions without excuse me could not fire workers without the trade unions' approval. Um, 
they were they were kind of intimately involved in all sorts of aspects of this recovering industrial economy. Um, and as I said before, um, by the time you get to 1928, workers' wages have have basically gone back to where they were in 1913. Not a particularly impressive accomplishment, perhaps, um, given that things weren't so wonderful in 1913, but it was a dramatic improvement from what it had been just a few years before. So you also mentioned that Tomsky plays a huge role in foreign policy in the 1920s through the trade unions. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it was important? Yeah, so, um, one of the rationalizations um, for the Bolsheviks, you know, seizing power in this country, they didn't meet any of the kind of Marxist preconditions of an advanced industrial country, still overwhelmingly peasant, was that it would spark revolutions in other countries. And they really expected that the Bolshevik revolution would lead to revolutions in Germany and France, etc. But it became obvious to Tomsky before others that that really wasn't going to happen anytime soon. Um, and he begins to work towards creating, instead of um, revolutions in other countries, a kind of international trade union movement that would bring together um, the trade unions that Tomsky's leading in the Soviet Union with trade unions in other countries. And where he has a really dramatic success, at least initially, is in Great Britain. Um, so one of the few foreign policy achievements of the of the 1920s for the Soviet Union was the creation of what became known as the Anglo-Russian Committee. Um, this was Tomsky um, reaching out to, to Labour Party leaders in Great Britain to cre to create a um, a, a joint uh, international uh, organization with the goal of of having that spread to other countries, um, namely Germany and France, uh, but other countries as well. Could you explain why that was possible? Because when you know you think of modern Britain, um, they seem like unlikely bedfellows for the Soviet Union. What made uh, the British working class receptive? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, especially since the, um, the labor leaders were very hostile to the communists and the the communist, relatively small communist party inside of Great Britain. I think it, a lot of it goes back to Tomsky's ability to charm people. So um, he's brought in as part of this foreign delegation that was working towards having um, Great Britain finally recognize the, the, the Soviet Union as a, as a legitimate government of, of Great Britain. Um, uh, of Russia, um, and um, he is brought to this dinner, um, and he gives this talk, and it's um, people are just these labor leaders are all cheering. They're you know, uh, it, you brought me back in touch with my goals when I first you know joined the Labor Party, um, and he uh, he also. Um, uh, attends at numerous conferences where he also gives speeches. Um, at one point, they even throw him up in the air at the end of it. But people describe in very vivid detail just how how um, compelling his his um, presentations were. He also brings many of these labor leaders to, to the Soviet Union to attend Soviet trade union congresses. Um, so a lot of it is, is um, Tomsky's ability to um, to try, reach common ground with these 
with these labor leaders. So the problem for Chomsky is he's also having to fight off those within Moscow who don't like this um, reaching out to these so-called um, reformists, not not radicals in in Great Britain. Um, and uh, that's part of the story is him trying to, uh, again, kind of walk this middle line, this kind of balancing act between um, making it appeals to, to Great Britain, um, to British labor leaders, while also having to deal with criticisms from many of the um, leaders of the Bolshevik party. But his initial success um, is such that everyone seems to agree that, that Tomsky has, has carried off this, this impressive feat and that it's, it would be possible to really um, perhaps create a sort of international trade union movement with social Democrats. Um, uh, and without getting into the weeds, there was also inside of Moscow, uh, this counter organization known as Profintern, which was uh, to create a communist trade union international, but this was willing to work with, with social Democrats. Tomsky's efforts all come crashing down though, when the, um, there's a 1926 general strike in, in Great Britain, in which uh, you know, coal miners kind of push the labor leaders into calling this general strike. Their heart's not really into, in, into it. Um, they're outmaneuvered by the conservative government, which had been anticipating how they would respond to some sort of strike like this. And after little more than a week, they, 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 um, they call off the strike. Um, and for Tomsky to put such faith in these uh, had such success with these labor leaders, for them to have betrayed um, the coal miners and other workers in Great Britain was really used by um, the more radical members of the, of the party, Trotsky in particular, but Zinoviev and Kamenev when they would later join up with, with Trotsky to, to kind of undermine um, uh, uh, Tomsky. But it was, uh, uh, initially a success, um, but it ultimately ends, ends in failure. When you say conservative British government, you mean the Lloyd George government, right? No, it's Stanley Baldwin, I think, was okay. the, um, was just elected. So the Labour Party was only in power for like nine months before. Um, and that goes back to something known as the Zinoviev letter. That, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but part of also why he was successful um, with these British trade unionists was when the a Labour Party is elected, um, it was against the rules for someone to be in the Labour Party, but also a trade union leader. So many of the trade union leaders who joined... That makes no sense. <laughs> but many of the trade union leaders um, would leave uh, the, the trade unions, positions like the president of the, of the trade unions Congress, to become a, a leading figure in the, in the Labour Party. That let more radical workers, because it was the more conservative members of the of the um, trade union movement who would join the, um, the uh, McDonald's government. Um, and um, and that when that government collapses, many of those people come back into the trade unions. It's they who call off the strike in 1926. Um, and uh, it's not the people with whom Tomsky had such an impressive early success. Um, uh, whining and dining them in Moscow, um, taking him out to his dacha, grilling sh shashlik, uh, uh, shish kebab for them. Um, uh, he really developed a friendship with many of them too, um, who uh, 
even though things got pretty bitter after the uh, general strike when Tomsky was under pressure to, to denounce them, um, looking towards towards the end of Tomsky's life when uh, many of these trade union, union leaders wanted to reestablish contact with him, Soviet government, the Stalinist government, tried to prevent it, but they ultimately, one of them succeeded. Um, so they, uh, it was partly uh, um, his ability to join into um, close collaboration and even friendship with many of these leaders that is again, a kind of striking example of, of his um, charm and self-confidence and uh, pragmatic um, inclinations. So, uh, the more orthodox Marxist ideologues within the party were opposed to this effort to, to establish a, um, close relations with the British trade unionists, but um, Tomsky went ahead without it. They initially all celebrated his successes, but then jumped at, the, at criticizing him when, when it all comes crashing down after the um, general strike in 1926. So did Tomsky speak English? He um, did not speak English much English, um, but he, in prison, had tried to learn some English, so he was able to carry on a, a simple conversation. Okay. But in these speeches, it, yeah, there was certainly a, a translator who was translating them. Well, I guess the translator did a good job if people found them charismatic, because a bad translator can suck all the fun out of a good speech. <laughs> Perhaps you give him more credit, the translator more more credit. But uh, but like in like in these other venues, he provoked laughter. He had all these little um, uh, sayings that people found uh, intriguing. But one of the one of the first times he spoke, um, Walter Citrine, who was the head of the trade unions in Britain at this point, says you know he was on his tiptoes in anticipation, and then Tomsky's metallic voice you know filled the room, um, which seemed all the more surprising to to many because he was very short. I mean he was just five foot three. Um, and all the Bolsheviks are minuscule though. That's true. Um, uh, Karin was less than five feet tall, I think, and uh, Stalin was relatively tall at five foot six. So. Well, Yezhov was an absolute midget, so. Um, but uh, to the British, they seemed, you know, malnourished and uh, had stunted growth and... Well, it's because they were. <laughs> so speaking of uh, Tomsky's other failures, you mentioned that Lenin had him banished to Central Asia. Um, why did that happen and how did that affect him? So in, in 1920, there was what became known as the as the um, trade union debate or, um, or debate over the workers' opposition, who um, were upset that workers did not have more control. Um, and um, anyway, Tomsky's initially very successful um, negotiating that. Um, he even at one of these trade union congresses um, have the they vote almost unanimously against Lenin, who's adopted uh, Trotsky's proposal about the need for labor armies and one-man management. Um, this ultimately leads to um, Tomsky, though, having to compromise, and um, but he plays a leading role in in resolving this trade union debate that had become really a topic that everyone in the country was was or everyone in the party was talking about during during 1920. It culminates at the 10th Party Congress in which 
uh, workers' opposition is is um, defeated uh, soundly, um, and uh, Tomsky's compromise proposal carries carries the day. Um, but just a month after that, um, at the Fourth Trade Union Congress um, later in early in 1921, uh, Tomsky kind of regrets having made some of these compromises or, or is under a lot of pressure from the more radical trade unionists uh, or following Alexander Shlopnikov with, with um, the workers' opposition. And he uh, um, is roundly criticized by the party leaders for allowing this trade union debate to continue. Lenin really wanted it over. I mean, he was very critical of, of Trotsky for making it public, but once it became public, it had to be resolved. It's also in the context, context of the Kronstadt revolt, um, there were strikes and, um, among workers, and um, Tomsky uh, uh, ultimately is brought before the Politburo and, the, uh, and figures in the, in the OGPU, the, the secret police, the Cheka, and is criticized. Uh, Lenin says, was this a mistake or a crime? He can't decide. But in any case, it's one of the first, it is the first time that the so-called ban on factions was put into place. Um, Lenin wants um, Tomsky to be kicked out of the party. A party leadership doesn't go along with that. Um, but he is sent off to Central Asia um, as uh, on a party mission, he becomes um, in charge of the uh, this Tur Turkestan Commission that was to oversee kind of nationality issues in this area where even though the Civil War is mostly over, there was still a lot of guerrilla warfare by, by Muslims opposed to the Bolshevik um, taking over the, the region. Um, and uh, that's how he ends up there. Um, and it really seemed at this point that his political career was was over, at least at the at the high in the highest echelons of the party. Um, but uh, remarkably, um, and we could talk a little bit about what happened while he was there. But remarkably, within just four months, he's brought back um, to to Moscow. And even more remarkably, again over Lenin's objections, he's made a member of the seven member um, uh, Politburo, uh, the highest policy-making uh, organ in, in the country. So, uh, so it is amazing that he would uh, be able to recover so quickly um, from what seemed like uh, kind of, kind of, uh, the end of his of his political career. Um, but he impresses people with how he does things in in Central Asia. He comes into serious conflict with one of the real fanatics in, in the party who is um, carrying out a policy of basically of dekulakization here in 1921, not the more familiar one of the end of, of 1929 and 1930, um, which he's rounding up these Russian settlers who have moved, who had moved to, to Central Asia, some in some cases decades earlier, um, and is um, basically rounding them up, giving them no time to really prepare, um, sending them out of these villages, um, taking them to railroad stations, and these people had nowhere, no idea of where they were being sent. Um, Tomsky, Tomsky's appalled at this treatment, and uh, 
And here again, you would be this kind of moderate voice, you know, this, you know, yes, we need to maybe do things about um, um, some of these settlers, but to just brutally round them up in this attempt to appeal to, to the local populations um, was, um, he found appalling and even more appalling was kind of the treatment of these, of these settlers. Would you call it dekulakization or would you call it decolonialization? Well, it's kind of, yeah, good point. It's um, basically went hand in hand. And that was partly why this guy Safarov, Georgi Safarov, was, was advocating these policies. Um, but um, these settlers were um, uh, basically kulaks and that they were more prosperous farmers than the generally nomadic. Um, well, kulak is a very squidgy term to begin with. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, um, but that's the term that would be used against them. Um, yeah, I mean, perhaps Tomsky was too solicitous of them. Um, this, they, you know, had been encouraged back at, under the czars um, to move to Central Asia as part of this attempt to have a Russian population in the region. A slightly racist colonial policy. Yeah, and uh, yes, definitely. And Tomsky himself um, had many of these kinds of, of prejudices against um, the local population. Um, but uh, uh, so um, so yes, it was it was that was the the um, justification. Partly was certainly decolonization and an attempt to appeal to. Um, the local populations. Also by this time, Lenin and Trotsky hoped that the revolution, which wasn't spreading to Western Europe, could spread to Asia and wanted to show um, uh, Asians that they were serious about decolonization, about um, supporting you know, the rights of self-determination by the local populations. Um, and uh, so yeah, um, Tomsky uh, tries to soften the party's policy towards um, towards the, the native population as well. He reopens the mosques, uh, reopens the bazaars, um, but he is um, strongly opposed to um, this policy of just rounding these people off. It's also, of course, in the context of 1920-21 when there's famine across Russia. Where, where are you going to send these people? Um, but um, but yes, he, um, he could... Uh, uh, as I just suggested, and I say in the book, um, could be criticized for being overly concerned about about their treatment, given that they were these basically these pioneers who came in and took um, the local population's land, um, and uh, um, not unlike we're familiar with in the United States of just moving and, and you know, pushing out the indigenous population and taking their land, um, but. Um, but that had happened well before Tomsky arrives, and the question is, you know, how to how to deal with this? And he um, is opposed to just um, rounding them up and sending them off. Also, partly because there's also a shortage of, of food inside of Central Asia, and these were farmers who were, um, you know, providing much much of the. the scant amount of food that there was. Much of Central Asia um, was known as Turkestan by the Tsarist government, also by the Soviet, had been converted to cotton farming. So um, they needed to import grain from, from Central Europe, as, excuse me, um, Central Russia, as well as um, 
the grain that um, these, these settlers were, were providing. But um, with the railroads cut off during the Civil War, there's a horrible famine, not just in um, the Volga region that you might be that our listeners might be familiar with, but also in Central Asia, where um, a large percentage of the population would would starve to death. So I'm assuming that this definitely put him in conflict when policies under the five-year plan of industrialization and collectivization and dequalization came into play. Yes. Yes. Um, so um, what, where Tomsky is most um, famous, or people perhaps heard heard his name, was as part of the so-called right opposition to to Stalin's policies. When Stalin suddenly in 1928 kind of abandons his the moderate policies that he had supported and advocated during the 1920s and begins talking about forced collectivization. Um, and uh, Tomsky joins with, with Bukharin and Rikoff, um, three members of the, of the Politburo, which by this point it, it expanded to nine members, um, to try to stop um, Stalin's policy of, of decolocalization and um, and uh, forced collectivization, and um, and they predicted the outcome of that would be disastrous. Um, they'd be talking about Stalin in the harshest terms. Um, one of the amazing things is this is not a novel um, on my part, but that people would you know support Stalin until um, the day he basically turns against them, and then suddenly the blinders come off and. Uh, Tomsky, uh, Bukharin, with Tomsky's support, basically describes um, Stalin as the next Genghis Khan. He's going to drown the revolution in blood. Yet, just six months before, they had been working arm in arm with with Stalin against against the so-called United Opposition. Um, so uh, it is really um, his opposition to the ending of NEP, to the introduction of these uh, kind of forced collectivization, but also breakneck industrial. Um, the five-year plans. The five-year plans, forced collectivization and, and breakneck industrialization. Um, and he was also concerned that, that this would also um, dramatically undercut the power of the trade unions, which it would. It uh, would also lead to a dramatic reduction in workers' wages, which it did. Um, but he also predicted that the peasants would, would oppose um, forced collectivization, which they certainly did. Um, and then, of course, it would ultimately lead to the horrible famine of 1932-33. Um, but by this point, uh, he's been pushed out of power. Um, uh, so he basically loses this uh, struggle against, against uh, Stalin. Uh, and it, re- it was at the 8th Trade Union Congress, December 1928, where this was basically the, the opposition to Stalin's kind of last organizational base. Um, and, uh, uh, but ultimately, uh, uh, he's, he, he's not able to stop the Stalinists from, from pushing him aside. And, uh, he would remain inside the, the Politburo for a short time afterwards, continue to attend meetings, but he had basically been, um, you know, had lost all political power. Um, so, um, so how does he spend his time? once he's no longer in power? I mean, does he hang out at his dacha like Khrushchev? Well, he, um, he initially basically has a nervous breakdown. Um, and uh, he uh, is sent off to Germany and Italy for some sort of treatments. I'm not sure exactly what... Who sent him? 
of the party. Wow. <laughs> so they threw him out of power, but they still sent him on a European spa trip? Yeah. Um, and you would think maybe um, after, after what he just experienced that he would not return. Um, on one of these trips, he's even able to bring his wife, but they return. Bukharin's also sent out of the country to, um, on one of these trips to collect uh, Marxist literature in Germany, but he returns. Um, but after he recovers, um, and he um, occupies a, a few different positions, he's um, basically head of the chemical industry for a little while, he becomes head of the state publishing uh, in, uh, operation in Russia. Lovelit. Um, well, it's Agis, uh, or, okay. um, but it's, yeah, it's basically the uh, continuation of that. Um, it's got some 36,000 employees. It oversees the publication of uh, everything in Russia um, during this period. Um, so here's Tomsky, three years of formal education, um, yet he's in, in charge of the, of the publishing industry in, in Russia. That's really not that weird. I mean, I look at, you know, RICOM chairman and stuff all the time. So many of these people have zero qualifications for any of the jobs they have. Sometimes it's too few education. Sometimes it's too much. I got one where it's a professor of history who's in charge suddenly of flax production. And I'm thinking, well, crap, I know nothing about flax. <laughs> and then other times, yeah, it's someone who did like two years of some sort of religious school and they're supposed to be you know, managing these huge enterprises. You're like, oh, God. Yeah, all, all true. I mean, certainly, though, Tomsky, by this point, was a very experienced administrator and the publishing industry was in pretty dire straits of a shortage of paper, all sorts of problems. And he was pretty good at at. Um, refurbishing um, many of these outdated printing presses, replacing them, uh, um, getting resources. He even meets with Stalin at one point, um, pleading for more resources for the, for the publishing industry. Um, but also, um, though, this is the time when the, the new policy of socialist realism has come into, into force. Um, so Tomsky's not really um, shaping publishing policy so much as, as administering it. But um, at one point, they need to get rid of all the textbooks in Russia since things have changed under Stalin. And um, Tomsky is able to um, kind of carry out the stu stupendous um, publishing um, expansion um, of, of textbooks and other resources. He also would try to help some people um, who were in dire straits by helping them get published, um, often uh, anonymously. So, um, but uh, um, so there were a few profiles, moments of profiles and courage. But basically, during this time, he's he's um, administering the trade union issues. He continues to be. Um, attacked by the by the Stalinists, he's brought before basically purge commissions, um, which also proved to be a, a great resource because he's basically at these purge commissions. Basically, he's told to when, tell the story you, of his life, and he and he would. When you're talking purge commissions, you're talking party purge commissions for the renewal of party documents, right? Yeah, um, uh, that was the. And that is the case for, for many of them, but um, each enterprise would set up these commissions um, and uh, 
And Tomsky's being criticized at the highest levels, at the party congresses. And so um, these local purge commission, um, which was, yeah, to verify documents, but also um, to, uh, and to kick people out of the party who, in most cases, was not because of their political views. Because uh, they were drunk. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Um, but they used this opportunity, which is all overseen seen by Kaganovich, um, to, to attack Tomsky. What was kind of striking also in these Perch Commission, in addition to kind of sharing his life experiences, was that even though he was, these dark clouds were hanging over him, even though he was in political disgrace, um, the people he was supervising at, at Ogi's, the publishing uh, conglomerate, would come to his defense um, and uh, talk about what great improvements he had made in, in the publishing industry. Um, and uh, uh, sadly, um, these, these acts of, of courage would all, all mean that not only the former, his former associates in the trade unions, but his associates in the, in the publishing industry would all be rounded up uh, during the great purges because of their association. So he was accused of familyness? Of what? Familyness, simenstva? Yeah, um, he was well. He was accused of double dealing. He was accused of um, basically uh, accused of being an enemy of the people. But um, these people, um, it was only after Tomsky commits suicide that um, these people would all be rounded up. Um, and um, so, yeah, um, familyness, if you if you want, um, but just uh, uh, anyone who basically had close associations with this. Um, this enemy of the people. And of course, this is familiar with other aspects of the Great Purges. Well, yeah, I mean, creating family circles and bringing your own people with you and sort of creating a protective family circle is something really common aimed at regional party bosses. Right. Yeah. No, so, yeah. Um, and it's also um, clear that he continued to meet with other oppositionists. Um, so... Uh, so, you know, he was accused of, you know, publicly supporting the party policies, but privately continuing to, to hold these oppositionist views, uh, would meet with um, people who'd been opposed to earlier, Zinoviev and Kamenev. Actually, Kamenev becomes employed in the publishing industry as well. Um, so act of almost an entrap in, in, entrapment when, when um, Tomsky meets with Kamenev over publishing industry issues, and they're accused of collaborating against the party. Well, I mean, that's the thing, though, is eventually all the leaders have worked together at some point. <laughs> and Kamenev later would say, yeah, we talked about everything uh, and, and anything when we get together. So, does he say that before or after the NKVD beats the absolute crap out of him? Well, yeah, um, uh, before. Um, it's, okay. You know, when they're being terrorized. Um, uh, but yeah, certainly, Kamenev <laughs> and Zinoviev would, you know, were the first targets of the, uh, were the targets of the first show trial in Moscow in the summer of 1936 when they would accuse Tomsky of being you know, a fellow terrorist and, you know, put on a, the same par as fascists and, um, and, uh, um, and it's that which would lead Tomsky to decide that he was not going to go through this 
um, process. He was not going to be interrogated. He was not going to have the crap beat out of him, to, to use your phrase, um, but he was going to commit suicide instead. Um, well, I say that because I'm currently going through repression documents in Kirov, and uh, it's very clear that the NKVD here beat people terribly and did things like the CIA where they put you in stress postures, where they put you in cold rooms, sleep deprivation, standing for hours on end. Uh, several people end up in psychiatric wards after this. So, yeah, I mean, they did absolutely torture these people. Yeah, but uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that that's not in 1936. That's more 1937. That's 1937, but uh, I would imagine that any interrogation documents that Kamenev and Zinoviev gave were probably at least slightly coerced. Yeah, yeah. I think there's no question about it. And sleep deprivation was a favorite um, uh method and very effective if you really you don't need to necessarily torture people but, you know, well, anybody like, who's lived through exam week knows it's quite effective <laughs> right so um yeah actually there's a well um there's there's a documentary about about these people who wanted to get a truck and if you could hold your hand on the car truck the longest you would get the truck and it was it's this texas documentary that's kind of fascinating about just how after a couple of days, people, as much as they might want this pickup truck, just could not keep their hand on the truck and start having hallucinations and various other things. So yeah, the so-called conveyor belt of just sleep deprivation, mm -hmm. which this, yeah. yes, the CIA certainly uses at Guantanamo Bay or used at Guantanamo Bay. I think uses. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, <laughs> it can be very, very effective. Um, but yes, they, but, but later um, they would use harsher methods. But the, 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 I mean, one of the mysteries has always been, you know, why would people confess to crimes they clearly had not committed? Um, and um, Tomsky did not want to go through this process, which he already kind of foresaw, of ha having to provide this last service to the party. Um, so he... Um, he decides to, uh, once he's denounced at this first show trial, kind of the testimony that um, Zinoviev and Kamenev and others give at the end of the, of the three days of hearings, and he picks up the newspaper that his chauffeur has, uh, has dropped by as he comes to pick him up to take him to another purge hearings. He was also going through kind of purge hearings at the same time as the show trial is going on. Um, he decides, according to his son, to just run along, and he takes a gun. He was a big hunter, uh, as all these party leaders were, but none perhaps as, as, as much as Tomsky, um, and he um, basically blows his brains out. Um, he hoped, to, it seems, um, and his suicide note would suggest that he was hoping to save his family, um, but they would, um, his two older sons would um, be a, later arrested and executed. His wife and his youngest son would be sent off to the gulag. Um, and uh, so that failed. And he also, as I mentioned, all of these people that had been associated with him would also be swept up in the, in the purges that follow his suicide. Um, so, and Stalin, the party leadership, is infuriated that he's committed suicide, deprived him of being able to forced him through one of these show trials, um, and, uh, um, but, uh... Well, I'm sure at that point he doesn't care because he's dead, but... 
So, but it's curious that you know, not a word of sympathy from from anybody who had been kind of his friends that he had been driven to this point, um, and uh, and he committed suicide. So, rather than ending on he committed suicide, why don't we summarize the things that are important about Tomsky? that other than he and Kurt Cobain uh, exited the world the same way, that you would like people to remember about him? Well, um, just that he played a central role in all the key developments in early Soviet history, um, including the the stormy debates over the role of unions in the self-proclaimed worker state. Um, uh, Just uh, that he'd been able to rise from an impoverished working class background, as we talked about earlier, and and years of Tsarist prison and Siberian exile, um, to become both a Politburo member and the the head of the trade unions. Whereas we've also talked about, he helped shape um, Soviet domestic and foreign policy along generally moderate lines throughout the 1920s. and it was his opposition to, to Stalin um, and his attempt to block Stalin's catastrophic adoption of forced collectivization that would tragically make Tomsky a, a prime target um, during the Great Purges. Um, so um, I think that's how I would summarize um, the significance of this um, uh, 452 page book. Um, uh, which goes into these various aspects of, it, of his life. Um, if your listeners are, are curious about getting a copy of the book, um, I'm not sure what Brill's marketing strategy is, but they put out the hardback at, 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 in very expensive editions. And the they e-book always is, do. And the ebook as well. But they also, uh, a year after um, the publication, which was in March, they will c- come out through Haymarket Press with a, uh, a paperback that's, um, very moderately priced. Um, so, um, so get your library to order a copy or, or wait for a year because right now the book's a hundred ninety dollars. Or check out the podcast. Yes. Or check out the podcast. Uh, yeah. So thank you very much for being here with us, uh, and I will let you go now. All right. Thank you. <laughs>